album Radio 3, which is a collaboration between Alyssa Harkins, Hanako Hoshimi Keynes, and Zoe Pollock. It's an indigenous futuristic concert that combines disco and indigenous languages, in this case Cherokee, in an effort to alter the fate of these endangered languages through active use, preservation on press vinyl, and radio play. Our episode today will focus on indigenous language and our position as settlers in relation to contemporary indigenous artists' use and engagement with indigenous language learning, publication, and other forms of distribution. We'll be playing samples from Radio 3 throughout today's show with the permission of Alyssa Harkins. But if you want to listen to the whole album, then you can purchase it on Western Front Recordings out of Vancouver through their Bandcamp, either as a digital download or as a double vinyl LP in Gatefold Sleeve. And I'd recommend the latter as you get a booklet with the lyrics of these songs. Speaking of the lyrics, let's listen in to this moment. the vinyl so that you can read the booklet which has the translations from the Cherokee language uh, in Alyssa Harkins's song Peyote. But one word that uh, struck me uh, was unisalada uh, which means something like web in Cherokee and it struck me because of a project at the Columbus Printed Arts Center here in Columbus, Ohio that I'm involved in uh, that gathers important books on international indigenous visual arts and philosophies as a kind of constellatory syllabus. And uh, this idea of the constellatory syllabus uh, in terms of this project really made me think of this web uh, from Harkins's song. The project at Columbus Printed Arts alternates being led every few months by a different international indigenous artist or writer whose practice delves deeply into sensual, spoken and marked languages 
from tattoo to built environment to painting to literature. Each artist shares books which are significant for their art histories and also design a limited edition screen print centered on an indigenous language phrase, proverb or concept, whose resonances through oratory and ceremonial political life are generative. Now I'm reading this description of the project on the Columbus Printed Arts Center website, columbusprintedarts.org, written by the guest librarian of the project, Dr. Leuli Ashragi. And I'm gonna invite Leuli to tell us the name of this project in the Samoan language. Potu Paitautusi, Paita Onga, Onganae, Ya Uluulu Mamao. Now, the translation of the title of the project is Be Courageous Language Teachers Reading Room. And, dear fellow settler colonizer, as you can imagine, when I'm speaking of this project with people, I usually use the shorthand Potufaitautusi, which means the reading room. Uh, but let's hear it again, spoken by Leoli, and also listen to them describe the project in some detail. So, my name is Leoli Shragi. Uh, I am an artist, uh, essayist, poet, curator, and researcher living and working between Canada and Australia and Samoa and have been really uh, honored to work on this project with Richard and the other artists and Eliza um, from Columbus Printed Arts Centre and this project Be Courageous Language Teachers Reading Room has been really a beautiful project to create together and has really been the result of our conversations, which began in uh, Sharjah Biennial 2019, it was like a decade ago, <laughs> uh, around international indigenous visual arts and uh, kind of speakers. So the kind of loss of language is very immediate in my family. We don't speak Persian, my father's language, and there's a lot of intergenerational trauma and loss there with regard to the regime. So very much cherish the Samoan language and other indigenous languages from the Great Ocean and all of the shores of the Americas, East Asia, Australia, New Zealand. And that sunken uh, continent that they found recently, Zealandia, <laughs> um, which New Caledonia and New Zealand are the like last protruding peaks. Um, so this project really, I think also curatorially, it arises out of seeing Slavs and Tartars and other contemporary art collectives and artists creating reading rooms. And for our project, well, actually in some exhibitions that I had worked on already, Poliuli, uh, which also had a re reading room at West Space um, in Melbourne and at a disused uh, former uh, supermarket location in Honolulu as part of the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center's project Aikai. A culture lab on convergence, uh, looking at like saltwater and freshwater meeting coast and the mountains and the sea. So I had a, like have had little iterations of reading rooms before. Usually in Melbourne, those were my books. So like 12 years of collecting monographs and magazines and things. 
which I donated to Black Dot Gallery, which is an indigenous artist-run space in Melbourne that uh, produced me, produced a lot of other artists and curators and writers in Melbourne and across the eastern seaboard of Australia. And when I was moving to Montreal, I decided that rather than take it all with me, it'd be better that it lived on. And it's formed the, they've got, there's, there's a website called Blackademy and there's a lot of really interesting reading spaces and activities that they're doing in a, and like a study nook. So First Nations and people of color can go and study, do some work, read all of these books, I think on site. I'm not sure that they have a lending library. Yeah, so, and then also with our um, Transits and Returns project, well, the three exhibitions that led to Transits and Returns, there was a reading room at uh, the Commute, um, which I worked on with Sarah Biscaradilli, one of the other contributors to this project, uh, Frere Carmichael, Lana Lopesi, and Tara Hope at the Institute of Modern Art in Brisbane. We had a really beautiful reading room with very select texts uh, chosen by us curators and by all of the eight artists from all around different nations in the Great Ocean and all its shores. and had greetings in each of our languages in green letterpress uh, vinyl on the walls, which is very beautiful. Also kind of seeing dialectical differences like um, like Maui Hawaiian versus like Oahu Hawaiian, things like that, um, or just different formulations of greetings. My um, kind of journey in and out of art was really tempered by not seeing any Islanders in art schools in Australia and in and very few in humanities when I wanted to study first out of, a year out of high school uh, and things have a little bit improved <laughs> but also the kind of university sector is being destroyed ideologically on purpose by uh, the federal kind of government in Australia so there are less and less opportunities for a, a diversity of art histories and epistemic traditions to really come through. So this project becomes even more uh, powerful. And so whilst we have uh, in-situ uh, reading room space at Columbus Printed Arts Center, um, we also have this incredible online resource where everybody can access it all around the world. And, you know, look at these bibliographical uh, entries, links to where to purchase these or read these online and some really important texts. And I think this kind of corrective um, syllabus is really, you know, maybe I don't, I doubt we're the first people to do it, but perhaps the first people to do it in this way, where we're all sharing authorship and sharing seats at the table, writing the table, <laughs> and uh, imagining when we can be together and um, share some of our favorite texts. And I think also the in the future, share meals and things like that, and particularly the the way that that we're going about creating the prints. I feel like a nice, a nice period of time after uh, we've each contributed uh, text to this um, reading room. We get to then ponder, you know, really ponder and reflect and think about how it would, how it would work and what kind of forms these can take. And so um, that's been really wonderful with Eliza. I also asked Laoli to talk about the print that they created uh, for this project in collaboration with Alyssa Smith and uh, print fellows at Columbus Printed Arts. And here's what they said. 
for this project are created um, with Eliza. Well, really, Eliza uh, totally worked on this. Uh, I sent a few images and some phrases, and we decided on this work, um, which is a kind of red sepia tone uh, treatment of an image from our clan lands um, in Afyamalu, which is about 25, 30 minutes drive uh, up the mountains from Apia, which is partially some of my clan territories as well, in, on the island of Upolu in what's currently the independent state of Samoa, Banana Republic, I'd like to add. Uh, and uh, with a despot dictator, we need to get out. Um, and so this, uh, there's some taro plants, you can see trees in the background, and it's uh, right next to the Cross Island Road, which follows a, an ancient walking track from prior to colonization. The kind of entrance to a few hectares, uh, maybe 10 acres of lands that my mom and dad are building a house on and hopefully a healing center, a lot of fruiting trees and herbs and medicines. And uh, my brothers and I have grand plans of creating a writing bungalow, music composition bungalow, <laughs> painting studio or something like that. And so this phrase uh, is actually a prayer that my mom would use uh, when my brothers or I had hurt ourselves and kind of close your eyes, tap, slowly tap the place that had been hurt and repeat this prayer, which is to one of the birds as a deity form. Um, so I'm quite surprised that this survived because it's uh, Samoan culture is heavily Christianized and colonized and things, but things do seep through the cracks. Um, so I'll read it out. Paia paia lava ti o aile ti o tala lele lele lava. Paia paia lava ti o aile ti o tala lele lele lava. And uh, I just really wanted to kind of honor that relationship. Obviously, my through my mother and my grandmother, a very strong kind of matrilineal connection to land in Samoa. And um, as I was speaking a little bit before, the loss on my father's side uh, kind of emphasizes that connection. And growing up in Samoa, but also in Australia, you have this kind of like uh, flow geographically and spiritually. So uh, it's really important to me. And I, and I hope that to kind of promote um, some of our prayers and things like this, that I think Maori and Hawaiians and Aboriginal peoples of Australia have been really successful in kind of raising that level of recognition in their own communities, and I'd love to see that happen in Samoan communities too.
Okay, so here we are on Dear Fellow Settler Colonizer, and luckily here we are again with Chanupa Hanskaluga, who is our guest once again for this third episode. How are you, Chanupa? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. And there's been a lot happening since we last spoke to each other last month. Could you fill us in on what you've been up to? Yeah, certainly. I had the opportunity to go to Portland through this group called uh, C3 and um, Stello. They're kind of like art residency initiative. I've been working with them for the last couple of years. And um, with kind of COVID, we kind of changed the format of our of our engagement. And I have a an exhibition with another artist from the from the settlement catalog, which is Marie Watt. And we actually used um, our our exhibition as a platform for engaging with our with our UK audience, as well as the globe, basically using social media as a platform for engagement. And uh, we're doing this project called Each Other. And each other consists of um, uh, well, it's 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 complex. So there is um, as an object that exists as a 12 foot tall, 18 foot long uh, she wolf or canid or companion species, you know, so if we, we wanted to kind of open up this this um, relationship with more than human species and that we have this relationship kind of embedded in our in our human experience. And, um, and we wanted to play around with the idea of like shelter. So how do we combine these two kind of ideas? Um, and uh, we really started to begin to think about like, what is shelter? What is the first place of like comfort and security that we've experienced as a, as a, as a creature, you know? Um, and as mammals, it's at the breast of our mother, you know, that is the, that is the, the first and, and probably kind of most, um, kind of endemic idea of comfort and security and shelter, you know, is, is at that, in that place. And so we invite the audience. This is why the scale of the, of the wolf is so large is that it, it invites the audience to experience this piece as a, as her pup, you know? And so she's laying down repose uh, with her underbelly kind of exposed, which will allow the audience to enter into that place of, of shelter and security. And we wanted to we wanted to create commentary on this idea of shelter as we're responding to a kind of isolation and sheltering in place kind of narrative. And so the object exists as that an invitation into this place of, of shelter with a with a non-human species, you know, with a with a more than human entity to, to kind of bond that kinship. The trick was to invite community to build her shelter, to create her hide and her pelt. And her pelt consists of um, over 700 bandanas that have been contributed kind of across the globe with embroidery on the, on the corner of these uh, bandanas that kind of express people's experiences within the last year of how they've been feeling and how they've been kind of adapting to all of the radical changes that we've experienced. So, not only sheltering in place and, and the ex, you know, exposure and, and uh, movement through a pandemic, but also the kind of civil unrest that has also been pervasive in, in the relationship to all of our uh, systems basically falling apart in a lot of ways, you know? And so um, the whole wolf is surfaced in corners of, of bandanas. And so I was just in Portland, Oregon, um, actually outside of Portland in this small town called Colton, 
And um, there, C3 has, uh, they purchased like 80 acres. It's an old, like, I believe Christian camp that's been converted into an art residency program and, and uh, venue for, you know, all, all sorts of kind of exchanges. Um, but there, Marie Watt and I kind of got together and build the head for this monumental sculpture. Um, uh, one of the people who works at C3 is a, is a gentleman named Neil. And Neil is a, um, you know, he's kind of a brilliant uh, self-taught engineer, you know? And he helped engineer the rest of the body. Um, so this wolf is, it, I, you know, we consider it a soft sculpture. It is completely posable. So any environment that it's placed in as this exhibition travels, it can respond to that environment and be adjusted so that it's unique um, every time you experience it. And uh, we got to put that together. We were also working with a, a company in Portland, Oregon called uh, Portland Garment Factory. And this is a woman owned, um, ethically practiced, you know, um, garment industry and so they pay living wages um and uh the the i believe the entire employees are all women and they all work within this kind of safe environment and get paid uh a living wage to produce garments so it's like the ethics of their space they helped kind of create the um the hide and the surface of this this wolf so all all of these kind of components came together in the last month where we spent two weeks kind of building the head and um, engaging with the bandanas and doing layout and photographs and a, and a small film, a short film about the process. Um, all kind of happened within the last two weeks. So it was pretty breakneck. And simultaneously, we experienced this like cold snap that whipped through, you know, across the, the western part of the, of the continent. And um, we had like an ice storm up there that cut the power out for two days. And uh, we kind of adjusted to all of that and made it happen and left with this piece complete. They're actually building the crates for its travel today. Wow, that's wonderful, Chanupa. And I just really appreciate hearing all those parts coming together and like how they come together, not only with the, the work of you and a collaborating artist, but with the, the labor that came to produce the uh, the bandanas and then the context of the the engineer and the textile uh, workers at the same time that's wonderful it's funny because i was thinking back to our last episode where we we're talking about uh non-indigenous accomplices and and questions of collaboration between indigenous and non-indigenous artists and, and communities and i think i even mentioned that your uh this project uh and it, this project kind of operates, you know, because in many ways the bandanas can be sent in from anybody, right? There's not a kind of a requirement that they are um, by uh, um, indigenous artists of any kind or, or right. even artists of any kind. There's that democratic kind of sense of it or cross, cross component. And then what we're talking about today uh, is the topic of language. And as our listeners have been hearing about the uh, exhibition and reading room here in Columbus at the Columbus Printed Arts Center, Potu Faitel Tusi, uh, and the topic of indigenous language learning, and uh, in many ways the relationship that settlers can have or may have, or you know, in many ways could have to uh, not only imperial languages but indigenous languages. So I was wondering, within these bandanas, what what kind of languages 
you know, not only like different languages, but the types of phrases that you'd get. Because as you say, these come from a moment of intense kind of uh, experience of, of, of shelter and not kind of not even an, an imposed shelter and, and, and um, refuge, as it were. So, yeah, yeah it's probably something about those those languages and the language phrases that you've been getting. Well, it, you know, with seven hundred bandanas coming in, there has been um, languages of 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 many different creeds, as well as um, you know, people's experiences. This is kind of an intimate moment for them to to sit and embroider. So they 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 want to kind of distill their experience into a single phrase or an image, you know. That's the other thing, like, you know, there are a variety of indigenous languages that have been written on these, um, you know, very few of them I know how to translate, but I love seeing them kind of overlapped with um, the experiences of everybody else. You know, it does, it does kind of distill this idea of survivance, you know, in relationship to, to the present. And um, I think, think that that's, that's kind of a, a really kind of special interaction as well as like, just the craft of embroidery is also, you know, there's a there's a language in that, the way um, that these things are put on. And like you said, you know, we didn't ask specifically just, you know, indigenous people or um, just Americans, you know, we asked for, a, 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 we had a, a global ask, you know, using social media as a, as a worldwide network, you know? Um, and so, you know, the variety of languages that came in you know, uh, run the gambit. You know, there are there are Korean and, and Chinese characters as well as um, English phrases, as well as, um, you know, I, there was definitely Diné and I saw some Cree and I can't even remember all of the different, there's Lakota, you know, so there's tons of languages that are embedded in this kind of surface, but we, you know, utilize those to create the surface for this for this large sculpture and so you know language is embedded in communication and how we communicate and um visual you know languages is basically the industry and the language that i that i operate in so seeing the the network of all of these together creates a whole new kind of like intersectional synergistic you know communication field you know which i think is um, kind of relevant to to some of these concepts. No, definitely, definitely. I mean, maybe we can, you know, go from this discussion of language and, and that idea of the, I mean, yeah, the the tapestry of language and the the, 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 the bringing them together in this way uh, to thinking about the interrelationship between, for one of better term, indigenous and 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 settler languages or imperial languages. I think a lot about. You know, English and Spanish and French as, 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 as imperial languages um, and the kind of status of language expression and learning within indigenous communities. The reading room uh, that I mentioned, uh, which is the guest curator is Leoli Ashragi, a uh, Samoan and Persian artist. In the, the language, in the Samoan language, uh, the phrase means be courageous language teachers reading room. And that, that call to be courageous, the language teachers, I find very kind of interesting and inspiring. But, you know, maybe you could just share with our listeners, you know, what kind of comes to mind with your work, with the settlement project, or in general, when thinking about the, the tensions between 
these imperial languages, and in our case, a lot of the time that is English, uh, and indigenous languages and mechanisms of learning and, and how languages connect to community and these kinds of questions. Yeah, well, one of the things that I've found, um, I'm not a fluent speaker in any of my indigenous languages. Um, the majority of the language that I, that I know is like scolding words, you know? Um, and I, you know, I learned that from my grandparents and my, and my parents, my mother, you know, particularly because that was when the language was used immediately. I, I do the same, like my, my children are also fluent in the languages of scolding, you know? Um, and it's, it seems like a great way to kind of like, if I'm very serious, I will speak in, in uh, Mandan or Hidatsa, you know, um, telling them to hurry up or to eat their food, you know, or that they talk too much. These are like all of the words that I, that I know in, you know, fluently as far as application. But the thing that I think is kind of fascinating as I, you know, because I do my own kind of exploration into language specifically because there's something really beautiful about the way that the language is formatted and the way that it makes you think, you know, and that's that's the most powerful aspect of, of language um, uh, retention and, and learning our languages is that it changes the way you kind of navigate in the world and for for um, for. Mandan and, and Hidatsa, you know, there isn't an emphasis on nouns, you know, and empirical languages have an emphasis on nouns and the format that it, that it generates, which, you know, is pervasive within the, the, um, the way we kind of navigate the world as well, you know, the, the, the um, objectifying everything is, is embedded in empirical languages. And, and whereas in Hidatsa and, and Mandan that, that I'm, you know, learning is things are, it's like a, a, a emphasis of verbs and things being in action, you know, um, which is, you can't, you can't describe it without describing its function. Um, and I think that that is, uh, something that I would be really even interested in manipulating empirical languages to challenge, you know, can you change the way you think regardless of, of the language that you speak? So I'm fluent in English and yet I, I, I would love to figure out a way to manipulate the English language and have it or, and really all empirical languages manipulate them so that they can become more emphasized in the verb. Like, can you describe a tree by its function? You know, this is a sun eater, you know? Um, and and like, like my clan is awache. Like this is like one of the identifiers of, of who I am and, and what my function and role is in the community. And the clan name awache is dripping earth. You know, it's a, it's a verb, you know, it's an action. It's describing the nature of the earth, not just dirt you know? Um, and so there, there's, there's many aspects of, of the language and, and a lot of indigenous languages that put emphasis on the role and their function and them existing as, as verbs, as actions that changes the way we think, you know? Um, and I think of that in relationship to even the industry that I work in, you know, I'm an artist. So I work with um, institutions. I work with museums and schools and academia and all of the, these kind of spaces. And their primary drive is preservation over maintenance, you know. And so to preserve something is to compartmentalize it, to label it, and to engage with it as a noun, 
you know um whereas you know even the term art and you know is i think been crippled by its relationship to objectification it's been crippled by its commodification and a market driven kind of economy around it when in reality art is a verb it is a intergenerational relationship of um, knowledge and knowledge share and uh, transmitting these ideas from one generation to the next uh, through the, the craft of it, you know? Um, and so even the project of each other and this, this wolf and, and that whole thing, this was a way that we figured out how to share art as a verb rather than art as a noun. Um, the, the 700 bandanas that were contributed were from people who were either artists or not artists, but their, their gestures that were applied to the surface of this allowed them to experience the work um, in action. And that I think is, is uh, you know, that's our best way to kind of manipulate the systems that we work in, whether that be language, economy, or, or you know, whatever, sociology. Um, this is a way that all of those who contributed, they have ownership of this piece without possessing it, you know, mm -hmm. um, and the possession and the, you know, is the, is the point at which it gets perverted. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I was reminded as you were speaking about this, the question of the objectification of, of language and the kind of the, the need for you know, these imperial languages to be kind of re, resettled, as it were, themselves with, with, with the different emphases that may, may think of, of verbal forms rather than nouns. And so one of the artists that is part of the Potu Faitautusi uh, reading room uh, is Sarah Biscara Dilly, uh, who's a Chumash artist. And they, one of the books that they uh, recommended for the library or for the reading room was called The Eye of the Flute. And it is a, a, a book of uh, Chumash uh, ritual, uh, as well as, as uh, uh, stories. But uh, one of the sections, and it's by a, a, an anthropologist that then record, you know, this, this tradition, right? This uh, settler tradition or academic tradition of the anthropologist going into communities recording uh, uh, stories and, and, and rituals. And there's one section of the book that's the glossary. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about that. And uh, Sarah has asked me to, uh, I'm going to scan the book for, for them and their, uh, their community and, and future you know, generations in order to kind of this, this book to kind of pass from hand to hand, but maybe as a PDF. Um, when I scan it where, where people may be able to use it in the library or on the website, I'm not going to scan those, not only some of the ritual elements, but also the glossary, because that is the problem. The language gets kind of, you know, there is a Chumash word for this, and there is, you know, a particular language word for this, which is not how these languages work. They are, they're live, as you're describing, like art, they are living, breathing things passed on through generations and not, so yeah, the settler colonial intervention and an attempt to kind of control and and uh um and not not maintain but preserve language in a in a in a, in a book uh becomes a, a really you know a problem when it comes yeah. to 
Well, that's that's also one of the challenges um, that you know my generation and younger are facing when there um, when there are these revitalized like language revitalization projects that happen you know on the res and and um, and around you know through through the internet and stuff like that's been my my exposure to Hidatsa is like an app that's that doesn't function very well you know it's like um, th that's like a whole nother language that that is um, kind of diluting and confusing that that relationship of language and culture but um from my experience like moving through um uh our language i'm 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 referencing it the same way i referenced english which is like almost like a dictionary you know so it's like a translation of an english word into the hidatsa word say um and you're you know for instance like um like the the word for badger is um like earth digger you know what i'm saying and and but badger is the noun you know badger is the is the is the objectification of it whereas um its translation literally is is like earth digger and and um and then that that is actually more like the verb aspect of it so it's it's challenging to even change the way you think if you're learning the language through empirical models, you know, versus, um, you know, experiential, you know, and then having somebody translate that specifically to you, you know, because as, as I was learning it, you know, I had to, I was seeing that like, Awa, you know, this, this, um, this earth kind of word would, um, you know, our languages, you, you, combine different root words so you bring things together in order to create new words these kind of like you know suffixes and prefixes and and, and stuff and that unification creates like a new a new word with we see that a lot in in languages in general but like knowing those root connections actually makes the um understanding of the of the of the noun you know it's the transmission it, it through the model of learning it, you omit the action of, of the, of the language. Cause you're just like referencing from these empirical models. So it's, it's a challenge, you know, it's a challenge within that as well as like, you know, there are embedded, um, uh, kind of traumas in learning language, uh, for, for, you know, a lot of people from like, say my generation, um, our parents, just began to kind of like learn their their languages there was like a you know late 70s kind of civil rights kind of movement towards um uh pride in our in our culture that like my grandparents generation um they suffered like uh um kind of hiding their language and and no and like this this kind of economic imposition of the idea that our culture and our way of being was um not beneficial to the world that we were living in or leading into and so a lot of a lot of our elder generation didn't you know raise us with our language didn't speak to us in our language because they struggled so hard to learn english find a job and all of this sort of stuff um, and so they thought that it would benefit us not to hear our language, you know, um, so that we could learn English and not be confused by it by another language. 
And then our parents' generation wanted to kind of rectify that. Um, but then oftentimes had to go through like empirical models to learn the language. And, you know, if they were lucky or fortunate enough, they had a parent who still spoke the language and spoke to them. But like growing up for me, I remember, you know, my, I remember my grandfather sitting at his coffee table, smoking like old gold cigarettes and drinking wheat coffee with a, with a peer of his speaking fluently in Hidatsa and in Mandan, you know, um, to one another. And we were omitted from that dialogue, you know, um, and, and yeah, there's, there's, there's all sorts of challenges around that. And like, you know, shame is a, is a, is a really uh, um, powerful teacher within indigenous communities, you know, shame has been used as a way to like, keep us um, from getting big heads and be, being humble is a, is a cultural, um, you know, it's, it's embedded in our, in our customary practices, it's embedded in our cosmology. Um, and so humbleness and shame have, have always been kind of like teaching tools, you know, but it's challenging when, um, when language programs come in, because oftentimes our elders will, you know, carry this weight of like, that's, you're, you're speaking it wrong, or you're not doing it correctly. And um, shaming us for, for not learning our language uh, in one way or another. But simultaneously, the, 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 the weight of that is, it's not on us, you know, the, the guilt and the shame that our elders kind of project onto us, I think is, um, is because they realize that we do long for that connection. We do long for that cultural importance and that way of thinking, you know, but we're, um, we didn't have the advantage of, of having somebody speak to us in that way or tell us or teach us in that way. And so now we have to use academia as a, as a angle to, to engage with our languages again, you know? And so um, some communities have really strong language things embedded it where, where others don't, you know? And, and so like under the umbrella of, of indigenous people, there's, there's a broad kind of complex narrative around learning our languages and, um, and this sense of belonging, you know, um, that's, that, that's challenged, you know, even as we are, you know, a generation of, of dislocated people, you know, that language feels like a way back in and then simultaneously to be shamed by your elders for not knowing it, um, makes it hard and kind of, kind of, I don't know, it, 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 makes it difficult to, to enter into those spaces as well as like, you know, there are immersive language programs, you know, and that's probably the most kind of regenerative way to, to maintain these languages within our culture. And yet with three quarters of our population being removed from community, it's really difficult to be embedded in, in a, an immersive program. Yeah, and I, I definitely, I think it's important hearing this Janupa to to recognize that this this shame you're describing is a direct result of ongoing colonialism like it, it is literally not you know it, it, it is uh, it is imposed and inflicted and it's a, a particular response to that um, and it, and this the complexity that you're describing comes from, from that situation and also by a kind of the alienation that comes from like suddenly these languages are 
part of an academic world or a world that that, that is not you know is is being alienated from the you know the knowledge keepers basically and so really something i i you know i you know I, I, about, I would I just i do yeah. want to interject at that Interesting. point because um yes yes you are correct on all of those accounts um but there is also you know there's also a, a silver lining to that to that gloomy cloud which is um i can talk with folks in alaska using the empirical english language we can communicate now and share ideas that would have been you know much more difficult if we were all speaking our own um, uh, individual cultural community language. And so I think, you know, going back to this idea, you know, we can change the way we think and still communicate in, in this. We can use the weapons of, of colonialism as tools to generate, um, tools to build bridges. You know, we can do this. Um, we, we don't have to be, um, victimized by the this this imposition because we're several generations into that now you know and um the language that we speak is an empirical language but you know anybody who studies english knows that it is um uh it's sticky you know it it pulls from so many different culture groups to generate new ways of thinking and so the the um the the hope you know the the i don't even want to use the word hope the um the efforts of of indigenous youth learning about their cultures and learning about their life ways and applying that through an english kind of framework um i think over time we can transform the way we communicate. We do, we're doing it right now. We do it with the way that we text. We do it with the way that we create slang, you know, new slangs to, to generate ideas and, and languages. There are, there are indigenous words that are uh, uh, recognized across indigenous cultures that are um, pigeon of English, you know, pigeon, you know, pigeon of English and, and uh, regional dialects, you know. All of these things are contributing to the way that we communicate and um, that imposition of, of uh, barbaric colonial practices are, are also um, generating new ways to communicate with, with each other. And so I think that, that you know, um, under the weight of that imposition, it's important for us to recognize that we have agency in the development of of new slang we have agency in the um in the ability to think in in broader terms and to actually create intersectional spaces with cultures that speak this same language but have different kind of knowledge roots um, whether that be environmental spiritual or sociological that we can describe in um, this English format, but you know it will change. English is different now than it was a uh, hundred years ago. It's going to be different, you know, a hundred years from now. So I, I, I do have. I'm an optimist, you know, um, because I'm alive. I'm an optimist, and and I believe that um, the abrasive nature of our our present cultures 
um, they grind together and they smooth out the pointiest places and um, language is built out of that dust of that grinding, you know, that, that, that dust becomes the um, kind of uh, uh, clay that we can generate a new, a new story, a new format and a new language out of, you know? So it takes time. It's hard to see right now because we're so close to it, you know? But um, I do know that that's what happens to languages. That's what happens to culture. That's what happens when you're not hung up on preserving things, but recognize the, the agency of maintaining culture, you know, is that your input shifts it, changes it, and it's subtle but it's changed forever. I can't add anything else to that, Janupa. I also, you know, like the, the my language is changed, right? And, and my language is changed because it's no longer my language. And that's the most important element. I think it doesn't, language doesn't get, uh, it gets imposed and then it's got, it, it, it becomes, it becomes of, you know, an, an open space to live. And I think that that's so important about that. What you're describing there is that, you know, living language, you know, can break free of the kind of the, the, these, you know, the imposition into kind of a reclaimed ownership and a transformation. And, and so I, I really like this and getting back to that point that you said earlier on about how English is transformed and English is transformed through varieties of language and intersections of language. Uh, I just wish, you know, I'd be thinking back to my formation and learning ancient Greek and and Latin, that uh, there was some way for me to kind of transform that traumatic experience into a, a living experience and a, and a generative experience. Because, you know, I felt like, uh, yeah, I always felt like an imposter with those languages. I always felt like I was never really getting it right. And... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I would just say that never getting it right is the agency that you have in it. You know, as long as we engage with culture, you know, and language as an extension of culture as an object, then we think that we can possess it. We think that we can own it. You know, we think that language is ours, you know, that culture is ours, but it's not. It, it, we, we can never own it because it's constantly changing and our, our lack of getting it is uh, the way that it is maintained versus preserved you know it's not it's not it's not an object you can't possess it it can't be yours you know you're also it's, saying that language can't possess us either which i think is really exciting you're saying that language it, doesn't possess us no it's the it's 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 once again goes back to the thinking right can you change the way you think then suddenly all of these um these impositions become not um not barriers, but tools, you know, like I can use this. You, you, you messed up and taught me English. You forced it onto me and you forced it onto so many other people and you screwed up by doing so because now we can all talk to each other, you know, and that's, that's, the, um, that's the beauty of it, you know, is that we're not victims to it. Um, it has been brutal. It has been abrasive. It has been hard. To, to maintain certain cultural aspects under the weight of it, but simultaneously, a whole new world of uh, communication can be developed out of that um, threat. You know what I'm saying? Like, so there's, yeah. there's, it's change the way you think about it. You know, um, don't ever get it, make it, make it happen. You know, 
fortunately for this conversation has changed the way I think about it. So I really appreciate that. And uh, um, I hope you'll come back next month and we'll continue this conversation on a different topic. And, and thanks again for, for sharing uh, this with our listeners. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. You're welcome. I want to end today's episode with a third track from Radio 3. We first heard Peyote, which is in the Cherokee language, and then Pony, which is in the Muscogee Creek language. And this song is also in the Muscogee Creek language, and it's perhaps my favorite song on the album. It uh, really gives Daft Punk a run for their money, as you'll hear, although sadly now Daft Punk have split up. And the reason it's my favorite song has to do with a lot of the things we've been talking about today. And that is the fact that the, uh, the style of song that mixes the kind of distorted pop synth voice uh, with an indigenous language uh, creates a kind of sense for, or a possibility for uh, mishearing or misunderstanding and the reason that really appeals to me at this moment is I'm actually re-recording this last section of the radio show after having a, an email correspondence with uh, the artist that created Radio 3 and the album. Throughout this whole episode, I've been uh, mispronouncing her name uh, when actually it is Elisa Harkins. And I'm so grateful to them for uh, pointing this out. And this means that throughout this episode, we've had we've had Alyssa, uh, Eliza, and Elisa. So three different pronunciations of the the same spelling. And this uh, this kind of mispronunciation really reminds me how the whole point of this radio show is the conversation itself. Dear fellow settler colonizer, we have to rethink our relationship with this language, this English language, uh, what I've called imperial, an, an imperial language, a colonizer language, that has uh, also in this episode been misheard as empirical language. But the experience of learning a language and engaging with others on their language learning is something that can be part of everybody's unlearning. And it's an active, ongoing process, and it is a generative process. And so I'm really grateful to Chinupa Hanskaluga, Leuli Ashragi, and Elisa Harkins for having this conversation with me today. And I also want to thank Catherine Paul, KP of Black Belt Eagle Scout, for allowing us to play one of their songs at the end of last month's episode but also for a recent Instagram post where they bravely show their, them learning their language and speaking their language. So as the Potu Fautautusi project says, be courageous, language teachers, but also language learners. And that includes us settler colonizers. We have to rethink our relationship with an, a language that we have traditionally conceived of as our own, when it really isn't. So this song, which in the English language is translated as I am red, in the Muscogee Creek language, 
Elisa tells me is pronounced Jadi Owis. And that still might not be anything <laughs> close to how it should be pronounced, but I'm grateful, Elisa, for you to give me a chance to pronounce it and for this dialogue. You can buy Radio 3 on Elisa Harkins's Bandcamp or on Western Front Recordings, either as a digital download or as a vinyl LP. And the latter has those lyrics. Thanks for listening.